Hi there, my name is John, and I'm in the campus ministry of the Guam ICC, and I also take care of this podcast. Thank you so much for clicking on this episode. The service we use to make podcasts is called Anchor. It's really simple to use and navigate. You can record, add sound effects and transitions, monetize your podcast, and post your podcast to other providers, such as Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The best part is, is that it's all free to use. Anchor is such an amazing way to start a podcast for any reason, so give it a try. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and let's get right into it. After service today, we're all going to be going to GPO to have lunch, and then we're going to watch Justice League right after. And so if you want to join us, please come. We're going to have a great time. Now the holidays um, have gotten here, yeah. and we understand that in our lives, there's distractions every single day. Oh, yeah. Things that will pull you away from God. Mm-hmm. Matthew 6 says, do not worry about your life. Mine. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Yep. Yeah. See, the worries of your life will pull you away from not just God, but the neglecting other things of your own life. Yeah. The Bible says that each day has enough trouble of its own without you worrying, and yet the holidays are some of the most distracting times of the year. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are traveling from place to place to, to visit their families. They're having, taking leave from work. And they preoccupy themselves with so many things, right? And it's family is important. Tradition is important for the family. But we can never put anything before God. Amen. And so what you've got to do during this time is, I want to encourage us as a church, be aware and, and make sure that you protect your time with God. Make sure that you're having your quiet times every day because let me tell you something, Thanksgiving was a very distracting time. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. But you see, Satan can get right in there and get your focus off of God. Yeah. And when something goes wrong, your attitude comes out and you realize, oh snap, I'm not focused on God. Yeah. And so that's just some admonishment I want to give us. Amen. Today, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 28. Okay. Come on, bro. You know, last Sunday we started with the definition of a word, and that was freedom. Today I want to share with you another word. It's called authority. The definition of authority is the power or the right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. You know, as a child I grew up and I saw my first examples of authority. Watched the police on TV and I saw the FBI agents on TV. They just show their badge and they get in wherever they want. They would literally pull a guy out of a car and says, Hey, I'm law enforcement. They'd get in the car and they'd drive wherever they needed to go. And I remember turning to my dad and said, Hey, how come he gets to do that? I know we can't do that. My dad turned to me and said, Son, it's just a matter of authority. You all experience authority in your daily lives. Whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, take the laws of physics, for example. These are unbreakable laws. One of them is the law of thermodynamics, which says that matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. Which means that you cannot create machines that will run itself. You have to burn fuel. And that's what powers our vehicles and cell phones. Everything. The law of gravity. The law of gravity cannot be broken. And if you were to break one of these laws, nobody knows what would happen because it's never been done before. You have a boss in your life. You have a superior. And you know that if you were to cross that person or you to be disobedient... At some point, you're going to be fired. It's a matter of authority. You understand our history. We've had queens and kings that had absolute authority. And if you mess with them, 
you would likely be killed or you'd be tortured. Something would happen to you. Today, the majority of power is balanced through vote, is it not? Sometimes the votes have to be completely unanimous. For example, whenever there's a new pope to be put in office, all those cardinals have to go inside of a room and they can't leave until they decide who the pope is. Sometimes in their days, weeks at a time, because they all have to agree on who the next pope is going to be. Then they can leave. Our officials in our country that we were born in, and you know, none of us agreed to these terms. We were just born into them. And so this is the way how things are. But our officials are empowered, quote, by the people for the people. Who do they serve? Well, they serve those that give them their authority. And that's the people. They don't serve God, they serve the people. And so you see a distinction between God's law and the law of man. And yet, in a way that they do serve God, because if you look at Romans 6, 13, 6, it says, give proper respect to those who give their full time to governing. For there's no authority established other than that which God has established. So a couple things. One, all authorities are allowed by God or willed by God. And all authorities are underneath God's own authority. For His purposes, which you'll find is that all men be saved. Whether you have a good leader, whether you have a a poor leader. But you know, for me, it proves to me that the Bible is from God because... The scriptures are so drastically different than anything that men has come up with. There's no voting in the Bible. There's no democracy. There's no absolute power for one person in the scriptures. And in my opinion, you can easily tell something that's from men versus something that's from God because it's from two different minds. And so there's two different results. The title of the lesson is All Authority. So, look at Matthew 28 and verse 18. 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. We read Jesus' last words here, and he was a man that claimed to have all authority given to him by God. Now, how do we know that Jesus had all authority? Well, we believe that Jesus lived and he died, and that God physically raised him from the dead, being the only person ever done that, to prove that everything he said and accredit everything he stood for was the truth. That he was, was in fact given all authority. But where would you start? Say you were given all authority. What if that were you? What kind of laws would you come up with? If you were in charge of your own country, your own whatever, what principles would you put in place? You find these are tough decisions you'd have to make. I mean, I think you'd find that there are certain principles that you have to submit to. Universal principles like justice. You'd have to submit to love if you want to be successful. You'd have to submit to righteousness, to mercy and humility. As a leader, you have to understand that these are authorities put in place that you must uphold if you want to be successful. Isn't that incredible? We find that these very principles are found right in the scriptures themselves. I'll just quote for you Micah 6.8, one of our favorite passages. It says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Where do these things come from? Things like justice and love and mercy. Now many people will tell you that it's just an invention of human idea. But does, do people invent mercy? I think you'll find that it's actually within you already. But who put that there? It's God. Why is that within us? Well, the scripture says that it's because these are God's own qualities that He Himself has. And so He's poured this into your hearts. And yet many people will not acknowledge that it's from God out of fear of stepping on people's toes. But hey, let every man decide for himself between him and his gods. Search his heart. Let no man stop another person from worshiping God, but that's going to happen anyway. Yeah. You know, Christianity is a written religion. You know, in the Old Testament, God trained His people to be diligent. He Himself wrote down the Ten Commandments on the tablets. And He had Moses write down the entire law. The first four books of the Bible were written by Moses under the command of God. The prophets, God had the prophets write down everything that they had to speak to not only Israel, but all the nations around them. He commanded them to write down what He said. The Psalms were written by David, inspired by Him, and the Proverbs. Even the apostles of the New Testament, they walked with Jesus, and they found it necessary to preserve the teachings of Jesus by writing them down with them and other people. And they also wrote letters to churches to be able to preserve the standards in the church. And all these things are all written down, and it gives us the Scriptures today. You know, I recently have discovered the, the power of writing. Realize why there's contracts that exist in our world because you've got to protect yourself. You have to make sure that what happened is not misconstrued, that what, what happened is, is a clear record. So there could be a clear distinction between right, between wrong, so that there's justice, so that there's mercy. You know, and some people will say, well, I've told me, he says, hey, I don't know how reliable the Bible is. Well, what's amazing is that after the apostles, right, in the 3rd in the century, the Catholic Church started. And the Catholic Church took the Bible and they preserved it to be one of the most well-kept documents that we have that's ancient. The Catholics preserved the Bible so well, they even took additional books and preserved those too. They called the Apocrypha, which literally means questionable. So they took not only the canonized Bible, but they took the extra ones that have questionable authority and preserved that for you as well. So we'll say, hey, well, maybe the Catholic Church changed the Bible. Well, the truth is that there's no reason for the Catholic Church to want to change the Bible because they believe in church authority over Bible authority. So in a lot of ways, what the Bible says is irrelevant because the church has the authority. And so they almost perfectly, they perfectly preserve the Scriptures for us to the point that the Bible is the most well-documented ancient manuscript in existence. There's more copies of the Bible than there is... Shakespeare, then there is Plato, then there is, um, you know, the, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, then there's Aristotle, all these worldly figures that we all agree existed. The Bible has more copies in existence than any of those things. Sorry, no, that's what we're laughing about. <laughs> they did this. Well, they say, what about the Old Testament? Well, there's another group that preserved the Old Testament for us. Those are the priesthood, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the Sadducees. 
These guys were so obsessed with knowing the Bible that they perfectly preserved it and scribed it. And if you just get into details about how they held these things, they were, it's, it's indisputable about the validity of the Old Testament. Now, whether or not these groups practice what they preserved is irrelevant because they preserved it for us. And so today, we're very beneficial because God made it so that we have 100% reliable Word of God. Now, understand that Jesus came and He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the prophets and the Psalms. And He is the cornerstone of the Scriptures, which means the primary stone, right? The headstone, the capstone. And so... When Jesus says, I have all authority, the authority of Jesus is the Scriptures. This is the authority of Jesus. In other words, the Bible has all authority. Now, there's a difference between authority and all authority, isn't there? In Genesis, when God created the earth and Adam and Eve created the earth, created man, He told Adam, He says, hey, I'm going to give you authority over the earth, over the plants, over the animals. Take care of them. Now, that's awesome because to this day, we still have that authority, right? right. We're still building. We're still doing whatever. But you've got to understand that we don't have all authority. We cannot change the laws of nature. We cannot change the laws of the universe. We don't have authority over time. Wouldn't that be cool? We often dream about going back in time, whatnot. Knowing the future. We don't have, we don't have authority over that. So some authority does not equal all authority. If I'm a CEO and I want to make you a manager or part of my company, you're going to have jurisdiction over whatever I give you, but I'm still the CEO. And so you're going to have to give an account to me because I have all authority of the company. There's even a parable called the parable of the talents where God is viewed as a master who gave his servants each a portion of his wealth, went away and came back and tried to see, okay, what did you do with my wealth? And there was that one wicked servant that didn't do anything, and he was thrown out, sadly. Now, when Jesus says that, hey, I have all authority, he's saying, hey, I'm God. That's indisputable. But then he says something else after he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It's pretty simple, huh? I have all authority, therefore, go to all nations and make disciples. And I think you'll find that 2,000 years later to the present day, the job is still not done. Is that crazy? The last time that this was done was during the days of the apostles who were themselves trained by Jesus. So they got it done in the days of the Roman Empire. And yet since then, there's been a lot of splits, there's been a lot of changes, there's been a lot of growth in, in groups, but the job to command to go to all nations make disciples has not been completed. What's the issue? In my opinion, the issue is recognizing authority. You see, if people recognize that Jesus has all authority, if He is the authority figure, they're going to do what He says. Because there's a lot of voices in our lives. We all grew up with authority, our first being our very parents. We did whatever they told us to do. Why? Because they're our parents. So we understand authority. And yet, the voice of your parents can be different from the voice of God. So we have to understand that Jesus has all authority. I love that part at the end. He says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Meaning that He will forever be with us as we carry out His will. The thing about authority is that it's questioned. We won't be obedient to something without good reason. We're going to test it. 
Your children power check you all the time to see what you're going to do. See, authority is something that needs to be demonstrated. People need to be persuaded. They need to be shown the authority before they make a decision to invest in it because each one of us has free will. You know, for me, my dad, growing up as a child, gave me $1 every day to teach me the value of money. Now, I'd never learned the value of money through that, but I learned how to save a few dollars through failing to save and spending all my dollars. <laughs> my mentor's, uh, my disciple's son, um, Keone, he seems to have some idea about the value of money. He told me once, he says, Bryson, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be a billionaire and I'm going to be so rich, I'm going to buy you and you have to do whatever I say. <laughs> now, I understand that maybe you could find some people that do that for you, but money doesn't work that way. Money doesn't give you absolute power. Okay? But have you been convinced about the authority of Jesus in your life? What is your current view of Jesus? And where does it come from? Does it come from your experience at church? Does it come from religious people in your life? Notice when Jesus sent out the apostles, He didn't say, you have all authority. He says, I have all authority. So really, obedience of churches is irrelevant. Because it's not the church's authority, it's Jesus' authority. Which is the Scriptures. So if you lived with a bad example in your life that hurt your, your attitude towards God, I'm telling you, that's not a good reason. That's a misunderstanding. Church of disobedience is not a good excuse. But know that this is not something that you go and find. This is something that finds you. Because Jesus said, go and make disciples. He didn't have the earth come to him and say, come to me and be disciples. So if you grew up in a church and you were never made into a disciple, I have good news for you. It's not your fault. It's not your responsibility. It's the disciples' responsibility to go and to find the lost souls. Amen. The purpose of the lesson today is to cure doubt. Amen. Notice that in Jesus' last words, it says that they came to him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Yet they saw Jesus die. They saw him raised from the dead. And yet they doubted him. And so he came to them and said, All authority has been given to me. In Hebrews 11.1, the Bible says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So your confidence in God this morning is your faith. Amen. Faith comes from hearing the message. Romans 10.17. And so today, I have three points about Jesus' authority. Point one, His authority to forgive sins. Go to Mark chapter 2. Mark 2, verse 1. It says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left even outside the door. He preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to uh, Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew the spirit that what they were saying and thinking in their hearts and said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. 
He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Amen. You see, Jesus heals this man's body, and yet people doubted him. Yeah. And he asked the question, what's is easier? Is it easier to forgive someone's sins, or to, to make them walk? That's like someone fully restoring John to when he was 18 years old. And John was an athlete. He played football. He was someone that you didn't want to mess with. Jesus says, it's harder to forgive someone's sins than it is to make John 18 years old again. It's a harder feat. But to prove that he had the authority to do it, he made him walk. Because he wanted them to know that he could forgive the sins. I find it interesting because the sins that Jesus forgives are never sins that technically are personally committed against Him. And yet they are because He died for them. What gave Him authority to forgive sins? Well, I think, number one, He was about to die for their sins and pay for them in full, so I think He had authority to forgive them because He was going to pay the price Himself. But He forgave sins of other people where the sins of the people that suffered for their sin, couldn't forgive them, Jesus forgave them. So I know that's a lot of words right there. Are you a forgiving person? Unforgiveness is really bitterness, which is anger that you hold on to. Bitterness is like a poison that you drink hoping that somebody else is going to die. But the only person that dies inside is you. Recently there was, there's many murders, but there was a very notable murder in the States by someone who was a grandmother and the grandmother did it. Now what she did was she murdered her daughter's husband and it was such a fascinating story because what happened was over one word that broke the, the camel's back caused her to go into her car and pull out a 9mm, fully load it, and then unload it on this guy, to go back to her car and then load it again as he is crawling away from her, unload it again, last time, unload it. And what she did after that was astonishing. She got in her car, it was her birthday, she got in her car, she drove to the coffee shop, had herself an awesome cup of tea, laughing with her friends as if nothing happened. She went and, and went about and got shopping for herself and they found her at a diner later that evening just sitting as if nothing happened. They walked up to her and said, we want to investigate. We want to talk with you about something that happened at your house. Brought her to the police station. And she pretended like she didn't know anything about it. And then finally she just confessed and says, I did it. I did it. Is he dead? Is he dead? Oh, yes. Yes. So excited. She's nuts. And yet, what's this a result of? It's a result of unforgiveness and bitterness that eventually caused her to do something she never dreamed that she would ever do. Now she's serving life in prison, 50 years, as a grandmother. She's not going to survive that. See, it's not a sin to be angry, but it is a sin to act in your anger. And one of those things is bitterness, which you don't think holding on to anger is sin, but it is. And you've got to understand that this anger that you hold up inside of you is going to destroy your life. It will not go away. This was years, years of, I don't know what it was that this guy did, but no one deserves to be killed like that. Amen? No matter what they do. 
It's the bitterness that she succumbed to. And so we've got to understand that we cannot react to things. We have to act. If you're angry, you've got to take a moment to cool off and to get away and make sure that you're not holding anything down and then you need to proceed with whatever you've got to do. Because then you risk putting bitterness in your heart and that doesn't get out easy. That doesn't go away. Who is that one person in your life that you will not forgive? Don't forgive them for them. Forgive them for you. Save yourself. Turn over to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 14. The Bible says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See, if you have bitterness in your heart, it's going to cause trouble for you. It makes life is already difficult. You put bitterness in there, it gets even more difficult. And it defiles you. You know, what do you think about when you think about something being defiled? I think about sewage. I don't know about you. I think about someone peeing in my drink. I think about something like that. That becomes you if you hold on to bitterness. And you're doing it for your, to yourself and it's your fault. But for me, I think for many of us, learning how to forgive is something that we're not taught in our schools. It's something that our parents do their best to instill into us. But it's something that often people never learn to do. And they live their life not forgiving. And they don't realize the cost of unforgiveness. Look over at Luke 23. How can we forgive each other? You can only think of one example to look to. Luke 23, 32. It says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they were crucified with him there. Along with the criminals, one that was right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And he divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. This was written notice above him, which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Dear friend, don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, Jesus answered him. Very truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. We understand that Jesus could go around and he could literally forgive anybody's sins. So we understand that he forgave this man's sins as he was dying on the cross. And yet, Jesus was antagonized on the cross. Right? They mocked him, they insulted him. Places say they spat on him. Now ask yourself, which is your boiling point? How far does it take before you get ticked off? And yet Jesus didn't get angry or flare up once. In fact, he was on the cross and he, he was able to pray from his heart, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Could you imagine the power it takes to be able to do that? To resist the attacks of other people and other Satan? Yet people commit suicide over what people say about them. People cave in and they, and they just ruin their lives. And then he prayed them, prayed for them. You know what I think? I, I think he, he was able to forgive them partially because he knew how bad it would be yeah. for those that didn't receive forgiveness. 
He knew that it was not. I would not wish this on my worst enemy. But it's interesting because in this we learn how to forgive. We forgive someone, you just forgive them. Amen. Someone says, I forgive you, but they always seem to bring up what they said they forgave you for years later. They always seem to use this as ammunition against you as if they didn't actually forgive you, as if they're still holding it against you. Let me tell you something, out of the overflow of the heart that all speaks, they are holding it against you. But how can you earn forgiveness? Is that something you can buy at the store and say, hey, can I buy uh, $30 worth of forgiveness points? That I, can, I really need my friend to forgive me, so I really need this. You can't, it's, it's, it's given. The word forgive means you give, you give beforehand. So before they did or anything right or wrong, you still give to them. Regardless, and whatever they do with it, that's up to them. So if you say you do forgive someone, then just do it. Amen. Now, it's not easy to forgive. Wow. Because anger and unforgiveness is selfish. It's selfish. Often when you hold on to it, it turns into sadness or it turns into depression. And I don't know if you've been, ever been depressed before, because I have. I've been angry before. Anger and depression feel good. They have, they have some sort of satisfaction to it. And people often wallow in their anger. They wallow in their depression. But it feels good to be selfish. That's why. Forgiveness is, is the hardest thing to do. But after you do it, you're free. If you hold on to something, you're going to be a slave forever. Wow. But I think you'll find that what Jesus did here is difficult to do. And I think people can't do this. People can say they forgive you, but they can't forgive you from their heart by themselves. Yeah. They'll still feel it. You know, you say, I, I forgive you, but why do I still feel angry at you? Yeah. <laughs> and so how can you forgive from your heart? Well, it's simply a matter of gratitude. I have never met an angry, grateful person in my life. <laughs> This past uh, weekend, people went shopping, and they felt so happy to spend thousands of dollars because they felt like they're getting a great deal. <laughs> and so they're grateful, and it enables them to gladly give their rent money. <laughs> but you see, when you feel like you're getting ripped off, you give it grudgingly, don't you? Yeah. Like when there's a monopoly and you, you just have to pay it. Like, man, I have to pay for the new iPhone. It's always $1,000. <laughs> And I never feel like I'm getting a good deal, but because I'm obsessed with the iPhone, I have to pay it. That's a grudgingly given amount. So what's the key to forgiveness? It's gratitude. The one who forgives much, is forgiven much, loves much. The one who's forgiven little, loves little. Jesus died for your sins. That's right. Come on. So the question is, are you grateful for that? Would people say that you're a forgiving person? That you love much? Or do you love little? You know, love is something that you just can't hide how much you have of it. And so, this world is an unforgiving world. It's a, it's a poisonous world. So don't contribute to it. Forgive, which is really just repentance. Become a disciple and submit to the authority of Jesus. Secondly, he had authority to lay down his life. Go to John 10. Okay, come on, Bryson. Come on, Bryson. Come on, 
verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd, does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming and he abandons the sheep and runs away, when the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it, the man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and share by me one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have ability to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This is my command I received from my Father. You know, is there anything in life that's worth laying down everything for? I mean, if there's something that you have to give up everything for, if you just lay down your life for, what would the requirements need to be for it? Many say, well, love is worth giving up everything for. And I'd agree with you. But love for what? Love for who? Yeah. Yeah. It seems like there is something out there. Jesus talks about him being the good shepherd. And that's, that's a very popular image of Jesus because he said it himself. He says, I'm the good shepherd, and what makes me the good shepherd is I lay down my life for my sheep. And the sheep are the disciples. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. He said, I have other sheep that's not of this pen. Those are the people that have yet to be disciples. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps people that are not even born yet. Perhaps he's talking about us. Yeah. They too must be brought in. Yeah. But I still lay down my life for all of them. Yes. You see... He also says that nobody takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And so we understand that Jesus, Jesus wasn't forced to go to the cross. Yeah. He, had a, he, had the ability, he had the ability to end it at any point. He says, hey, wouldn't my father put at my disposal over 12 legions of angels? Yeah. Yeah. But th I, this needs to happen this way so that all the prophets will be fulfilled. And so Jesus was being obedient to God's authority. Yeah. But he willingly went to the cross. And if you ever read the account, you notice that he was first uh, slapped and he was first mistreated and he was and, and people lied about him, people that he healed and saved. They lied to testify to put him to death. They, they, they brought a, uh, a guy who, who was a murderer and they said, who do you want to release? Jesus or the murderer? And they said, yeah. the murderer will take him. Yeah. And so betrayal after betrayal, desertion after desertion, mistreatment after mistreatment, all the way up to the cross. You've got to ask yourself the question, when would you crack? When would enough be enough? And yet Jesus proved that he was giving it all. Because he really did lay it all down. You know, I think you'll find you never know if someone's willing to give everything until it's really tested. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, know, yeah. you, you don't know if, if, yeah. if what you're going to do in that kind of situation. Yeah. But is there anybody that you would die for right now? I mean, if it really came down to it, who would you die for? And I think the real question is, when do you have an opportunity to do this? Because we're all used to quite dramatic examples, like we watch movies like The Avengers, we're going to watch Justice League. I'm sure somebody dies in Justice League. <laughs> somebody always dies. Someone gives their life and it's like, oh, we've got to avenge this person, and then only to be brought to life, back to life the next movie. <laughs> Cinema. But is that the only time you get to lay down your life? I mean, whoever gets an opportunity to do that, to jump in front of a bullet, to jump in front of a car, not many of us. Yeah. So I want to show us when you have that opportunity. Go to John 15. Okay, come on. <clears throat> come on, Bryson. Oh. <laughs> uh, what's the time? What's, 
What's my duration, Brittany? 3518. Okay. Good time, good time. Okay. John 15, verse 12. Jesus simply says, My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Well, there it is right there. You see, Jesus taught that self-sacrifice is the greatest act of love. To sacrifice yourself, and yet, was Jesus calling everyone to die right then and there? No. There's three words for love in the Bible. One is phileo, which is friendly love. The second is eros, which is sensual love or romantic love. And the third is agape, which means deep, self-sacrificial love. The word he uses is agape. And he says that this is the greatest form of love. And so if you had to compare your standard of love to this standard, self-sacrifice, I mean, who is it that you love in your life? Do you love yourself? Is there one person that you love more than yourself? See, love is not a feeling or emotion or it's not... It's not um, an activity, it's, it's a, it is a hard line decision. It is a sign of commitment that's tested and true. If you love somebody, how often should you love them? Well, if you ask me, I think every day. Yeah. And so how often should you lay down your life? Yeah. Every day. Because laying down your life is love. Amen. Well, how do you do that? Turn over to Luke 9. Okay, Verse 23, it says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up the cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save the life will lose it. Whoever loses the life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So we've read this scripture many, many times, but since we just studied out, we understand that love is self-sacrifice. And so simply Jesus is saying, you need to love me. Give up your life. Come on. Now we think give up your life, our minds are, it's, it's, it's intense, but we're like, oh, that's, that's too crazy, that's too much. Mm. And yet we don't realize it's just love. He's simply calling us to love him. Wow. But the difference is he's calling us to use real love wow. instead of a facade. Wow. You know, how you do that is, is it requires, like he says here, self-denial and taking up a cross daily. It means that if you don't do what you want to do, you put someone above yourself, and it's a commitment that you do every day. Now, we all fall short of that, don't we? Yeah. 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 But isn't it great to have a standard? Amen. Something to shoot for? Instead of being like, well, does it really matter? Come on. You find that people that are not committed have little love in their hearts. See, love equals commitment, which equals sacrifice, which equals an action and a choice. And so who are you more committed to yourself? To? Are you committed to yourself and your interests? Or to God? But the real question is simply, do you love God? A lot of quotes in our, in our day that we hear. Be ashamed to die until you've done some great deed for humanity. Every man dies, but not every man truly lives. I mean, I love driving by Circle K every day because there's an awesome quote there that inspires me. 
And I just take that quote, I put it right on Facebook, and people say, wow, Bryson, your quotes are awesome. <laughs> Little did they know that I'm getting it from Circle K. Thank you, Circle K. But let me ask you this question. If this were your last day on Earth, would you feel complete? Would you feel ready to die? You know, we live such short lives. We live such short, it's, it, we just don't have enough time not to give everything. We can't waste our life because there's, there's, there's no time to, to worry about we're going to figure it out, whether we're going to feel safe or whether or not this or that's going to work out. We just need to love God while we still have time, while we're still on this earth because, hey, today could be your last day. Tomorrow could be your last day. Yeah, yeah. Amen. And so don't care what other people think. Do your best. Nah. You know, Jesus lived only 33 years, and, you know, I've, I've talked to a brother that says, man, when I turned 33 years old, I was depressed because I thought I would die that day. Because Jesus only lived 33 years. <laughs> I don't know how long we're going to live. But we know that it's all, we're all headed to one destination, and that's judgment. Yeah. And we're going to be asked, my son, my daughter, did you love me with all your heart? Did you do your best to remember Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Come on, Bryson. Come on, Bryson. Come on, Bryson. Verse 13. It says, if you're, quote, out of our mind, it's for, as some of you say, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, Jesus died, he died for you and for me. And, you know, as disciples, we got to carry a cross every day. And in a sense, we have to even be willing to be out of our minds a little bit. But ask the question hey, have you been doing it? Have you been living it out? You know, when we sin, there's a penalty for it. The definition of sin in the Bible is simply missing the mark. It's actually an archery term. It's best explained that way. So if you ever were in an archery competition, there'd be a, a target, and whatever you missed by was the sin of, the, of your shot. Because you're supposed to hit the bullseye, whatever you're off by is, is what's, what's, what's lacking. Sin's also called a transgression because what we need to hit is the law of God. Transgression is breaking a law. And so when you sin, you broke the law of God. And so, in God's law, it says that, hey, sin has a penalty, and that's death. And it must be paid for. So, in other words, you're, someone's going to pay. You're going to have to pay for it, or someone else will pay for it. Now, God is, is a just God, and so he doesn't bend to, to people's will. He needs to, he doesn't just forgive people. The sin needs to be paid for. And so, Jesus came, and he died in your place, a criminal's death, because that's what we deserve for our sins. It's a, it is a black and white example. You know, there's a story that I wanted to share with us. Just a, a modern day story of, of something that did happen. Okay, come on. In the old movement, the old church. And I think uh, many of us will get something out of this. Okay, come on, Bryson. <clears throat> so it says, uh, Gladys Staines and her husband Graham served many years as missionaries in India. Preached the gospel in helping leprosy patients in the backward rural areas of Orissa in eastern India. They had three lovely children. Graham was on a ministry trip to a particular village in early 1999 when tragedy struck. 
An angry crowd of people from another religion surrounded the vehicle where he and his two sons, Philip and Timothy, were sleeping. Frenzied and filled with hatred and false accusations, they set the car on fire, and Graham and his sons were burned alive. The tragedy gained international attention and drew mixed responses from the leaders in India. Some condemned it, others spoke with a mixed message because of the faith and the mission that Graham had lived for, preached, and died for. Graham's wife, Gladys, and surviving child, Esther, handled the murder with tremendous grace and forgiveness, saying, quote, Looking back, I believed that the Lord prepared me for the trial I had to go through. During my morning quiet time on January 14th, Jesus has since been my tower of strength, the light of my darkest night. My life today belongs to him, the good shepherd, and there is nothing I shall want, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil, for the Lord is with me. I have only one message for the people of India. I am not bitter, neither am I angry, but I have one great desire that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of love. Wow. Now this happened in 1999 in our old church. These were disciples, just like you and I. Amen. Where, where tragedy struck their family, and yet they had the power of forgiveness. Amen. And the love of Christ in their hearts. Isn't that incredible? You know, I always think about hypothetical situations where when I was an early disciple, we asked the question, hey, if you were there and there was a disciple and there was an unbeliever and you could only save one, who would you save? Mm. That's a hard decision. But with Jesus, it's easy. Mm. You save the unbeliever because they could go to hell. Yeah. You allow the brother or sister to sacrifice themselves. And you know that whoever was saved will be faithful for the rest of their life. Amen. Because someone gave their life for them. Amen. And proved to them the truth. Amen. In conclusion at this point, let's go to John 21. Okay, come on, Come on, Now the Bible says that God is not slow in keeping His promises, but He's patient wanting everyone to come to repentance. Yeah. And so we have our whole lives to, to learn how to love, and every moment is an opportunity for us to learn even more. Yeah. Through failures, through examples, men and women. Sorry, I'm going to get here. Forgot where the Bible, where the books are for a second. Okay, John 21, 15. <clears throat> it says, When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon said of John, Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon said of John, Do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to them, Simon said of John, Do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you're younger, you went, dressed yourself, and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hand, and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. You know, in laying down your life, Jesus' will was that he would take care of the disciples. So what impact should this have on us as a church? Well, we should have a heart to make disciples and to take care of disciples. So don't forget what Jesus did for you. He had authority laid on his life so we could make disciples. In conclusion, let's go back to Matthew 28. 
You know, we had a few peaks of Jesus' authority. He had all authority, and yet you, you see the things that he chose to do. Matthew 28, verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted, and Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, Jesus' authority took so many forms, but ultimately, how is it accomplished in our lives? It's through going and making disciples. Amen. And not worrying about our lives. So the challenge today is, be a disciple. Amen. If you're not one, become one. Amen. Get baptized. And don't worry, just submit to the all-comforting authority of Jesus. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thank you. Amen. Amen. And now we're going to pray for communion together.